Today, there's about 45% of the population unbanked in sub-Saharan Africa. If we go back to 2011, that was at 77%. So there is significant progress being made. It's also a really exciting market in terms of opportunity. The continent as a whole has 1.4 million people. 60% of the population are under 25. So it's a really up and coming developing market. And while there's been a lot achieved to date, um, there's lots more to do. You're listening to Leaders in Payments and Fintech, a podcast brought to you by Edgar Dunn & Company, the global payments and fintech consulting firm. Coming to you from the City of London, I'm your host, Martin Kodrish. And in this series, I'm meeting with leaders and practitioners across the industry to find out what it takes to bridge the gap between strategy and execution. My central question is, how can we commercialize and bring the benefits of ever deeper new technology to market in what continues to be a highly regulated industry? If you enjoy these interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. So enough of the intro, let's get straight into today's episode. This week, we're continuing with the theme of financial inclusion, this time in Africa. I'm speaking with Maid McGuire, who is the global commercial lead at CR2. CR2 is a world-leading vendor within the digital banking platform market with a market leadership position in Africa. Headquartered in Ireland, they enable over 100 banks in 60 countries. Having spent more than a decade in the African region, in our conversation, Mabe shares her perspective on the huge social and economic impact that the growth in digital payments and more broadly, technology-enabled financial services has had on the region. So I do hope you enjoy this conversation with Mabe McGuire from CR2. Thank you so much for joining us, Mabe. It's great to see you today. How are you doing? Thanks, Martin. Yeah, I'm great and I'm really excited for our conversation. So thanks for having me. Perhaps you can start off with a bit about yourself. My name is Maeve McGuire and I am the Global Commercial Head at CR2. CR2 is a digital and banking payments provider and we work in many emerging markets across the globe uh, with a particular uh, breadth of customers in Africa. We're in 34 countries in Africa, so we've significant experience. You know, I think my own personal first time to Africa was 10 years ago to Ethiopia where, you know, I came with a bag of cash because paying electronically wasn't an option. And now, you know, when I traveled to Ethiopia, I would never consider bringing that cash. You know, it's all it's always a card. Every day working with CR2, I get to work with a lot of amazing banks who are addressing the financial inclusion question. And of course, using CR2 solutions, uh, digital banking, as well as wallets and cards to be able to address financial inclusion and to be able to provide relevant propositions uh, to consumers at the right place at the right time, pending their market, whether that's USSD channels, because smartphone isn't, for example, you know, uh, yet uh, dominant in some markets, or, you know, amazing smartphone propositions in countries like Nigeria, where smartphone penetration is increasing. It'd be interesting to set the seed in terms of the state of financial inclusion in urban and rural centres across Africa. Sure. So look, if we look at Africa as a continent, you know, it's a, it's a continent of opportunity, I would say today. You know, it's the second most populous continent in the world. It's got 1.4 billion people. In sub-Saharan Africa, there's, you know, the majority of people are living. And there's, today, there's about 45% unbanked within sub-Saharan Africa. Overall, in Africa, it's about 60%. But if we take sub-Saharan Africa as a concentration, it's about 45%. If we go back to 2011, that was at 77%. So while the figures might seem staggering still today, there's a huge amount of progress being made. You know, it's also a really exciting market in terms of opportunity. You know, 60% 
of the population are under 25. So it's a really up and coming developing market. And while there's been a lot achieved to date, um, there's lots more to do. If we look at, you know, the unbanked concentrations, um, it does vary market to market. So actually, Ethiopia is one of the markets I started working in first. And if I go back to 2011, you know, when I used to arrive in Ethiopia, I would just bring cash. You would never even consider that, you know, you would have a card and you would rely on transactions. I'd have, you know, bar or dollar, which I would, you know, go into a hotel and I would transfer into bar. Now, you know, I never even think about running cash. It's all card based. It's all access based. And, you know, why in Ethiopia, it's one of the populations that there's still a huge amount to do in terms of banked. I mean, they're still probably hovering around 70% unbanked. There is a huge change in that landscape. You know, Kenya has done a huge job in terms of providing financial access. They're now at 80% and we can maybe look a little bit later on as to, as, to, as to how that happened, really driven by the mother of all wallets, which is M-Pesa, you know, and we can talk about the story of M-Pesa a little bit later on, because I think that's really important and it totally changed the landscape of Africa and maybe questionably globally as to how we make payments today. You know, looking at Nigeria, which is, you know, Ethiopia and Nigeria are the two biggest populous countries in Africa. And Nigeria is, I think, about 180 million. I stand to be corrected on the exact figure of that. But, you know, it's it's up towards 200 million. And they are about 50% unbanked. But, you know, there's huge initiatives in Nigeria uh, by the government, by fintechs, by regulators in terms of addressing that divide. And as I said earlier, Ethiopia, uh, you know, that's at uh, still, you know, They've only got about 30% banked. Although there's big changes in, e in Ethiopia recently as well, whereby, uh, you know, they've opened up the telecom operator business. They've introduced a second telecom operator. So for years, there was an incumbent called ETO Telecom. And recently they launched a wallet proposition to the market. And from 21 to 23, they've 30 million accounts acquired via, via their telebar proposition. So, you know, big strides being made lots more to do and lots of opportunity. But I think what also is a really interesting point is that while there's been a significant increase, the number of customers who are, let's say, or consumers who are financially included, that means that they have access to either a mobile, a mobile money wallet or a bank account. The transactions, the e-transactions, electronic transactions are still around, you know, five and 7%. So, you know, that means that 90% of transactions in Africa are still cash-based. Let me just get it straight. So although the bank population has, has increased, cash is still, still widespread. Yeah, it's very okay. prevalent. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be done in that. It presents a huge opportunity. Like McKinsey estimates that between 20, 2020 and 2025, there will be a 150% increase in the amount of uh, e-payments uh, processed in Africa. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's significant. So there's a huge opportunity within this continent. Okay, so let's just talk about the fintech and the evolution of technology-driven financial services and what actually, you know, what the definition of, of, of that is in the African context. When do we sort of mark the, the beginning of that wave, would you say? Yeah, look, I think before we talk about fintech, we have to look at the story of M-Pesa in Kenya. So, you know, the, the story of M-Pesa in Kenya is one which, as I said earlier, I, I think not only changed the landscape within Kenya, across Africa, but also globally. Because, you know, a lot of people would argue that M-Pesa is 
responsible for what we consider to be the modern day watch. And we're saying that, you know, by 2026, 60% of the world's entire population will transact uh, via via digital wallet. And so M-Pesa was a real game changer. That started around 2007 in Kenya, and it was set up between Safaricom and Vodafone. And really, you know, the pilot was a project to initially look at the repayment of microloans via airtime value. And it was so successful that it was rolled out uh, to peer-to-peer uh, payments. But we have to look at the reasons why it was so successful. You know, the use cases at the time as to why M-Pesa, you know, really, really took off. Because M-Pesa, the model has been tried in several other countries, like South Africa, for example, and didn't work as well. So I think it's really important when we talk about financial inclusion, it must be relevant use cases and access points for people in particular regions in order for us to grow e-transactions and to really make people utilize those accounts. There's two points, there's access to accounts, and then there's a truly creating a digital economy where people transact digitally rather than still rely on cash. So at the time in Kenya in 2007, there was a cash-based economy and a lot of people living in urban areas who had family back in rural areas that they were sending money home to. There was no formal way there was the likes of Western Union, et cetera, but you know, it was expensive to send to send money. And so a lot of people sent it via a friend going home on a bus. But you know, there was a lot of crime and people's money was not safe. And so another another dynamic was that you know, Vodafone and Safaricom had come into the market and the mobile penetration was increasing dramatically. So, you know, people had mobile phones. And it was just a really opportune time that it, you know, addressed a lot of use cases for people. And to be able to send money back home, to be able to pay for things in a secure fashion. And now today, you know, Kenya is 80% of the entire population have access to finance. So I think that's a huge success story. And this is currently still driven by the MPESA system in Kenya. Yeah, yeah. Most of my colleagues that live in Nairobi, you know, they wouldn't even consider using a card. You know, they pay for their petrol or everything via MPESA. So, you know, MPESA is how you pay. Almost like us in Europe are starting to say, I'll revolute you. In 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 Kenya, it's like, you know, I'll let, you know, I'll pay the Mpesa. Yeah. Okay, great. So and, and then how's the sort of the landscape developed from that point on across Africa? You, you, I mean, I think it represented a like I said, the flagship project which inspired other projects across the continent and the world, like you mentioned. And where are the sort of the hotspots currently, would you say, in terms of innovate, fintech innovation and take up and adoption? Yeah. So look, there's been huge strides made. First of all, I would say the telecom operators have really dominated a lot in this space over the last number. Are they still as relevant as they used to be, right? I do believe in certain countries, they are relevant as relevant as they used to be. So, you know, for example, in Ghana, mobile money is a huge thing. Uganda, mobile money is a huge, of huge importance to the economy. And in Ethiopia, we're starting to see that, you know, while there was some successful bank-led uh, wallet propositions, the telecom operator, due to the fact that they already have 70 million subscribers, are really making it inroads now as they launch their, their own mobile wallet. So I think, you know, you can't MTN and all of those great giants, you can't dispute that they're making a huge role inroads in terms of financial inclusion. But there are some, you know, really interesting fintechs across the continent. Because, you know, it's one thing, as I said earlier, providing access to an account, but, you know, how do you ensure that people utilize that account? 
And I think the next, you know, story on the, on the journey is the fintech. There's about 2,000 fintechs, I think, in Africa, according to McKinsey reports recently. So, you know, it, it's really huge. And, you know, I think a lot of those fintechs deserve a podcast series in their own right in terms of, you know, the relevance of their use cases and what they're doing across the continent. But, you know, some really interesting ones are uh, the likes of ChipperCash, which starts as a use case of sending remittances from the diaspora back into Africa and, of course, migrant workers across Africa. The use case of being able to, in an affordable way, send remittances back home. And, you know, they now have about 5 million users and, you know, you can send money not only, you know, from America, for example, into, into the U.S. where there's, you know, a large migrant worker population, but also, you know, interoperability across Africa. So, you know, that's really a new use case that, you know, uh, the telecom operators traditionally were not providing. Opay is another example, you know, in Nigeria, they have 18 million consumers today, their whole mission is around providing affordable access to services to people throughout Africa. And I think where these guys are being really successful is, you know, they're sort of going down the super app route where they're offering to their consumers much more than just a bank account. You know, the capability to be able to make payments, to do lifestyle-based services, the capability to be able to access credit. And so, you know, that's really making a change and getting more usage. When you can offer more than just transactional based propositions, when you can offer real services that make a difference in people's lives, then you're going to create stickiness. And that's where we'll see the transactions really increase digitally. You know, when you're providing convenience for the customer to onboard into your, into your solution, which the telecom operators had. And then you're also providing, you know, propositions that are affordably going to change their life such as responsible access to affordable credit to, you know, entrepreneurs, then we're really going to see a, a huge difference. Yeah, the, so there is this kind of ecosystem developing, like you said, which includes access to, access to accounts and payments and micro lending and micro insurance and remittances. Do you get a real sense of this ecosystem developing at a domestic level? Or is there also a kind of an emergence of a pan-African cross-border type ecosystem? Yeah, like I think there's a lot of initiatives that are cross-border and I think we'll only continue to see that grow. Like if you look at the likes of MFS Africa, which are try, you know, not trying actually, they are significantly enabling interoperability across Africa, you know, uh, via the via the telecom operators, rails. Also, we're seeing Opay and Chipper Cash go into multiple countries across Africa. And you know, we see initiatives from the likes of the Nigerian regulator like NIBS and uh, PSPs, you know, look at ways of, you know, providing payments uh, across Africa to solve the African problem. So, and also, of course, we've got the telecom operators, which are like MTN, which are in multiple countries. So we're seeing a lot of interoperability, not just uh, pan-African interoperability, but global interoperability. And then, of course, you know, some of these providers like Chipper Cash or, or other bank land wallets are using rails of people like Tunes in order to provide, you know, remittances back into Africa to ensure that their populations, you know, have access to uh, affordable credit from their families living outside of Africa. Those remittances flows from the diaspora worldwide, the African diaspora, are quite significant now, right? So... They are becoming a source of funding for the continent and obviously mm. also denominated in US dollars, so a source of foreign exchange as well. 
Yeah, so like foreign exchange is really important. It's also important to the banks because if you look at places like Ethiopia or Nigeria, they aren't pegged to the dollar. And so, you know, foreign currency shortages are a real issue. So, you know, the remittance rails are really fundamentally important, you know, for the economy, as well as, you know, a use case, uh, as we said, to provide important money back home to vast populations who are being funded uh, by their families working abroad. So, you know, really important uh, move. And, you know, we have the likes of, as I said, tunes, so many, so many to, to, to mention. You know, we work with a bank in Ethiopia who has a very successful uh, wallet proposition. They're called Dashin Bank in Ethiopia with a wallet called Mole. And, you know, they're connected to multiple remittance partners whereby, you know, they're, they're solving two use cases. Then what is the foreign currency shortage in the country? And the other is really enabling their their people to become financially included and for people to be to have access to money from their families that are working outside of Ethiopia, you know, in London, in Washington, et cetera. And it's it's really it's really important. Just got one more question before we move on to the next topic, really around uh, the actual social impact of 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 financial technology. So, so you know, to, to what extent is the the ecosystem an alternative ecosystem to the traditional banks, or as you mentioned, is there a level of integration between the the two worlds? Uh, I mean, to what extent are the how are the banks responding and integrating or partnering with fintechs? Yeah, I think that the banks are starting to really shift in terms of their mindset as we as we are globally mm. in terms yeah. of collaboration. So, you know, if I look at uh, one of our customers, Access Bank in Nigeria, they have a fantastic uh, fintech proposition where they're, you know, working with uh, numerous Nigerian fintechs to be able to assist them in, you know, everything from issuing cards on their behalf, hosting accounts on their behalf, to also, you know, management advice, et cetera, to in some cases funding and investing. So we see this from a lot of the Pan-African banks. You know, also, if I look at Dash and Bank in Ethiopia, where while, you know, they uh, launched their own wallet and it's been a very successful wallet. I think they had three million new customers on board within the first 18 months, you know, of their launch. You know, they also are connecting, you know, with the operators to ensure that there's collaboration and to ensure that their consumers, you know, have access at all air, at all points, because, you know, all of all of these countries and from a regulation point of view and from a government point of view, are very focused on financial inclusion. And I think that's really important. You know, it does take a village. It's not just about, you know, uh, the fintech providers or the banks. It also, you know, has to be a responsibility of, of the governments, of regulators to really drive this agenda forward in order to get true, true inclusion. Actually, on on that topic, the sort of regulatory landscape is that how's that evolved? I mean, obviously, we've seen a significant shift in or introduction of new regulations in in, in the European continent, for example, to support new entrants into financial services. Have we seen something similar in Africa? Yeah, I think we definitely have. I mean, one of the reasons that M-Pesa was so successful was because of the support of the regulator at the time, you know, and 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 you can't have that success without it. You know, we see in Nigeria, um, there's a huge push for financial inclusion. One of the biggest barriers for financial inclusion, you know, is ID and identification. And so like in Nigeria, what we see is that, you know, they're actually going out into the rural areas driven by MIBS, you know, which is part of the government of, of Nigeria. And they're, if the if people don't have identifications, they're even enabling them to KYC 
via chiefs in the tribal areas to, you know, say, yeah, we know this person. And then they will issue them with, uh, you know, the unique banking number that you need in Nigeria in order to become financially included, because what you need in Nigeria is that banking record. So everybody is really trying across all areas, whether it's fintechs coming up with innovation propositions like Opay that we mentioned, or it's, you know, NIBs going out into the rural areas to really drive the unbanked populations. We see that from all areas. In Ethiopia, you know, they launched a digital agenda for the country to 2025. So, you know, they're very supportive from a government perspective to, you know, ensure that the country advanced digitally and, and not just, uh, you know, around inclusion. But what we see about the banks there is that they have a real pillar of their, uh, you know, from an executive level under KPIs to ensure digital transformation and eruption uh, because of this, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, when people are are included into the financial, financial ecosystem, you know, their research says that it, it, it reduces poverty. You know, they've, you know, the World Bank has said, I think that um, countries with successful mobile platforms reduce poverty by 2.6% like overall. So it's, it's significant. And I think we see a huge push from regulators uh, to address that. We also see in Ghana, you know, KYC identification projects rolled out by the government and the regulator. So a real shift to address financial inclusion, but also to ensure, I guess, transparency of funds and to ensure that, you know, payments are made digitally. And I think that's going to be the real game changer. When payments are mandated to be made digitally, then there is a big shift in economies. Like if I'm in the UAE now, about, I'm going to say, you know, 10 years ago or so, they introduced the WIP program where all uh, workers had to be paid via bank account. And, you know, that has completely shifted the market. I think 70 or 80% of transactions are digital now in the UAE. And so it's really shifted from the landscape. We see, you know, in Ethiopia recently, you know, one of the senior bankers I work with mentioned that, you know, the government mandated electricity payments uh, for you to open accounts via, via the government bank in order to, you know, pay electricity bills. Within the first month of doing that, they had a million consumers signed up uh, for a bank account because they forced them to open a bank account. And the second month, 80% of people were still using the mobile app uh, that they downloaded or the USSD channel in order to make those payments. So, you know, we need to have relevant use cases in order to really create stickiness. And I think we do see a big drive from governments to address that. Okay, let's switch gear to the, uh, I'd like to kind of just touch on the you know, tangible social impact this is having on, on people's lives. And I think we're witnessing particularly an impact on women. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, so look, one of the opportunities for improvement definitely is in the area of access to finance for women. While, you know, there a, a lot has been done in this area, women still lag behind by about, I think, 9% in sub-Saharan Africa with access to bank accounts or, you know, mobile money. So, you know, there's still quite a, a, a divide. And, you know, I think in order to overall globally shift the, you know, gender equity uh, divide, I think they're going to say it's going to take another 132 years. We have to address the, the financial access uh, part of that. It, it's critical. But, you know, I think we see so many amazing cases, you know, on a personal basis, I've seen in Ethiopia how Dash and Bank are really uh, changing the lives of female entrepreneurs in the rural areas, whereby they're working with Unilever to provide bank accounts for Unilever's 
agents who are selling their goods in the, in the rural areas. Before, you know, Dasha Bank got involved, these uh, women were, I think there's about 5,000 of them, you know, were unbanked. They were dealing in cash on a daily basis. And when they would come home, people would take cash from them for, you know, variety of reasons as families do. And they weren't able to save. And, you know, when you're not able to save, you're not able to grow your business because, you know, you don't potentially have access to the cash you need to be able to purchase your goods for the next day. So, you know, that's, you know, one tangible use case that I've seen in person. But but not not only that, once they have the cash and savings, they can buy more, they can expand their business. And now they're offering credit uh, or about to launch credit on that facility where they can offer both individuals or, you know, uh, entrepreneurs on a buy now, pay later scheme uh, to provide access to, uh, to, to credit for them to be able to expand uh, their businesses. So, you know, I think there's huge examples of that. I think that, you know, statistically, we're seeing that there's definitely when women have access to financial inclusion, there's, uh, sorry, financial bank accounts, et cetera, they're spending more on things like education, things like, you know, nutritious food for their uh, for their families. And so, you know, I think the whole of society benefits when, when uh, women have access to, to uh, funds. They're very interlinked topics, aren't they? Financial services or access to financial services and and provision of education and then healthcare and, and that drives the economic activity further. So it's a kind of chain reaction, would you say? I mean, is it is that sort of ignited by by access to financial uh, services? I think it's the total chain reaction. And I think we've seen it in, you know, all economies globally shift. Mm. You know, I, I think, you know, I come from Ireland. I've seen, you know, that over sort of my 40 years of existence that, you know, it's, you know, access to credit right enables us to involve our wealth if, if, if used responsibly and to provide ourselves with opportunities, you know, for education or for, you know, investing in our businesses, et cetera. So, you know, we definitely see that globally as a spiral effect. We also see in places like Uganda, where there's been a shift from, you know, more traditional based roles like agriculture, et cetera, into services, et cetera. So, you know, that's as the intervention of mobile money. So I think it's definitely a domino effect. And, you know, if we want to achieve real impact in society, financial inclusion plays a huge role in that. What are sort of the next challenges, would you say, for, for the sector uh, and the continent in terms of uh, financial inclusion? Yeah, look, I, I think the huge challenge is what we've touched on, yeah. which is the fact that, you know, while we have all of this progress, we still have a cash-based uh, economy. So, you know, we do see, you know, changes uh, in that. And we, you know, there, there are trends that we're seeing emerge, like, you know, for example, agency banking is growing dramatically across the continent. Because, of course, if you want people to use a source of funds, you need to give them access to their cash. And, you know, we'll never have enough branches or ATMs or even the cost of branches and ATMs for banks and financial institutions across mm. Africa is huge. So we are seeing like a huge growth in the agency banking network. I, you know, I think that Opay has about 500,000 agents. I know one of our customers uh, doubled their agent network recently, you know, in 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 six months from about 100 to, to, uh, to 200 within six months. So like it's, you know, it's really, really growing because access to their cash is fundamentally important. But the biggest challenge we have for sure is to convert the already banked population to actually transact digitally and, you know, to include those people who are, who are excluded today. And, you know, I think that 
will be really game changing. And I think we're beginning to see that shift. You know, as I said, the, the, the e-payments market is growing rapidly. And, you know, McKinsey have estimated that that's going to grow by 150% in the next five years. So roughly 30% year on year. That's significant. And then, you know, we'll really see real inclusion when people are actually utilizing the accounts. And, you know, when because when people are in the payments ecosystem, then providers have the visibility to be able to offer them the products that they need at the right time. For example, if I know that Maze is running low on cash, you know, on a Wednesday because her salary's been paid, I have the opportunity to give her a micro loan so that she might be able to buy the stock that she needs to sell in her shop the next day. So, you know, that's fundamentally important. Getting people actually digitally enabled and utilizing so that we have visibility on their payments in order to be able to provide them with the propositions that they need to be able to grow their life and, you know, to to uh, grow their wealth. That's really fundamentally important. I think it's a big challenge. Okay, great. Coming to the um, end of our conversation, can you just tell the audience how best to reach out to you and contact you? Yeah, sure. You can email me at maze.mcguire. Uh, that's M-A-B-H dot McGuire, M-A-G-U-I-R-E at CR2.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, Maze McGuire CR2. Okay, great. Well, Thank you so much for your time, Maybe It's been a fascinating conversation. I'd love to do a follow-up at some point. There's so much more to talk about. But for now, thank you very much. Um, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks so much, Martin. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To hear more interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. It helps and means a lot. Also, I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions, so feel free to make contact and say hello. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or at edgardunn.com. You can send me a message there. Or you can email me on martin.coderish at edgardunn.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I will see you next time.